All right, the passage is Psalm 103. If you want to grab your Bibles, you want to turn there. Psalm chapter 103. If you have a device, we uh, do the English Standard Version, so you can go to that. Man, this is a really just deep and dense psalm, like most of them are. We're really going to be skimming the surface of this in many ways. Last week, we looked at the wrath of God, if you remember from Psalm chapter 7, and we learned that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same God, has not changed through the years in an attempt to stay on trend with our morality and our media and our cultural viewpoints, right? What we learned is that God intensely hates sin. And in fact, if he tolerated sin, it would mean he was intolerant then of the mercy and grace we require in order to be saved from the sin God intensely hates, right? But this is what we also learned, that though God intensely hates sin, at the same time, he immensely loves sinners. And so the reason why repentant sinners can stand before a wrathful God who intensely hates sin is because Jesus bore God's wrath for repentant sinners upon himself. And he did it by what we just sang. He did it by grace alone. Now, a lot of us, like I mentioned in the beginning, have probably become inoculated to this word grace. It's a churchy word. And if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've heard it a lot. If you haven't been, it's a word you're going to start hearing a lot about, right? But what I've come to understand is it's one of these words that can just sort of mindlessly flow out of our mouths, kind of like an order in the drive through line at Wendy's. We just kind of toss it out there without thinking much about it. We can talk about God's grace kind of flippantly as well, as you know, kind of like we might describe somebody, we can say, oh, well, they're really pretty. You know, I mean, and that's nice, but, but it doesn't really change anything for us. But God's grace, and what we're going to see today, God's grace is far costlier than that. This is a grace with just this world-saving, life-giving, freedom-created weight attached to it. God's grace has guts. God's grace has guts. In fact, the only way we benefit from God is by God's grace. So the question we want to ask as we're kicking it off right now is, well, what the heck? What is grace then exactly? Well, let's start with what grace is not, okay? How many of you guys maybe had like your grandparents or your parents at some point when you were a kid open up a savings account for you? That, does that still happen? Is that like old school? Like none of you. Nobody here had somebody open a savings account. All right, thank you, Scott Long. I appreciate that. Your check's in the mail for raising your hand on that one. Now, here's what we know about when your parents opened that savings account for you or your grandparents. It was great until you realized that they only made the initial deposit. And then it was up to you to start dropping cash into your account, except that you're a kid and you don't want a savings account. You want candy, right? It just doesn't mean a lot to you. Now, grace is not God opening a bank account in your name, making an initial deposit, and then expecting you to build it up from there. That's not grace. Grace means that God opened a bank account and continues to deposit all the money you ever need in it because it turns out you don't have any money-earning power at the end of the day. And of course, I just destroyed every parent who opened a savings account for their kid with that analogy, right? But it doesn't matter because none of you did that, right? Um, so that's what grace is not. Here's what grace is. A guy named Abraham Booth defines grace by saying this. He says, it is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the bestowment of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and unworthy. 
A guy named A.W. Pink, this is how he defines grace. He says, grace can be neither bought, earned, or won by the creature. If it could be, it would cease to be grace. It comes to him as pure charity, and at first, unmasked and undesired. So the strange thing about grace is that when God saves us by his grace, before he did that, we didn't want it. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, he says this, famous passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, he says. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's by God's grace alone, through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, that salvation is applied to sinners. So even right now, as we're just sort of forming what we understand about grace, you can see that it's not just this flowery pastel word like mimicking what I'm wearing today for Mother's Day, right? It has guts to it. Now, the problem, what we face when we're confronted with God's grace, and as people who are trying to understand God's grace, is we can't believe that God doesn't require payment. Like, we just don't get that. That doesn't really work itself out in the world's economy. The thing is, God does require payment, right? But he got someone else to pay for us so that we could enjoy all the benefits that come with that initial payment of grace that gets applied to our account when we put our trust in Jesus. So what David does here in Psalm 103 is give us this exhaustive or fairly exhaustive list of the benefits God gives to repentant sinners and shows us what repentant sinners are called to do so that they don't become forgetful, so that they won't become ungrateful for those benefits. So let's just pick up right here, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to read the first two verses And then we're going to come back to those. It says this, bless the Lord, O my soul. We just sang this, right? And all that is in within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So David begins and actually ends his song here in the same way with praise and thanksgiving. And I'm going to go back to this. Uh, I'm going to go back to this because I I, I want us to jump up to uh, verse 3 through 13 to get us into the bulk of the passage. And then we're going to come and we're going to look back at the beginning and then at the end and see how David applies God's grace uh, to his life. So the first thing that we understand here about grace and about what David is trying to communicate to us through the psalm is that we need to remember God's benefits. We need to remember God's benefits. Let's pick up in verse 3, and I'm going to read through 13. It says this. Verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 6, The Lord works righteousness, And justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he always keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those 
who fear him. So let's just stop right there because what David is instructing us to do here, number one, is we need to remember God's benefits. Now, when the word benefits pops up, your mind probably goes to sort of the, you know, the benefits package that your job provides for those of you who have jobs where they give you some benefits. So what happens is um, you get hired and you enter into transactional agreement with the company that hires you. And what that company is saying is that we are going to pay you such and such an amount to do this particular job. And in addition to that, in addition to the money that we pay you, you will receive benefits. And we get all excited about the benefits. Benefits like medical insurance and paid vacation days and maybe end of the year bonuses. It's not a bad deal, right? But it ain't for nothing, right? It's transactional. It's dependent on something. It's dependent on your performance. It's dependent on you do the job that you are signing up to do. Now, the benefits that David is speaking of here that we just read through are covenantal. They're different than transactional. It means this. It means that God gives them to us of his own choosing. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, God gives us these blessings and these benefits to us by grace because our sin has made it so that we have no power to rightly earn or deserve them. This also means on the flip that we don't lose them when we have a bad day on this job called life that we're all a part of, right? Because Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 6 keeps going. It says... In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his what? His glorious grace with which he has blessed us. With which, that grace, he has blessed us in the beloved. So, follow me here. Unlike your boss, God chose by his own will to give you an inheritance of riches because you couldn't earn it. Not so that you would earn it which is what you get when you get a job. So the shocking, incomprehensible depths of God's grace is that this, while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us so that we could receive the benefits that come from being rescued by God through Jesus. And, and look at that list of benefits that we see from verses 3 through 13. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about healing, redemption, love, satisfaction in him, renewal, righteousness, justice, mercy, and compassion. All of that is included. It's not just a one and done. God's grace just doesn't save us and then get those things doled out to us as God feels like he's in a good mood or not. All of those things are available to us upon moment of salvation with God's grace invading our heart through Christ. So, when you receive benefits from your job, you typically enjoy them without your boss in the mix, right? You guys follow me here? In other words, when you go on vacation for two weeks, your boss isn't waiting for you on the other side, right? He's not waiting for you on the beach with suntan lotion, paddle boards, and fruity drinks, right? He's not there. Part of the benefit of the benefits is that you get away from your boss for two weeks, right? That's called a benefit. That's called a vacation. But let's look at what David's doing here. The benefits David lists here are the result of God being present with us. When God called the children of Israel out of slavery, if you remember back in Exodus, he didn't send them on their way. 
He didn't just send them on their way and say, hey, you know what, let me know when you get there and if you absolutely need me, have Moses send me a text or, you know, whatever, whatever's going on, right? No, no, no. He made himself known to Moses, it says here in the text, by being present and not dealing with them according to their sins, but by being patient, by being long-suffering, and by being merciful. So in the same way that God was merciful as he pulled the children of Israel from slavery, he does the same thing to us by pulling us from the bondage and slavery we were in with our sins. So for us, these unforgettable, because they sound unforgettable to me, but often forgotten benefits find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ for us. Who does what? Well, let's go through the list again. He forgives our transgressions. He heals our diseases, mainly our disease of sin. He redeems us from everlasting punishment. He loves us sacrificially. You can just follow down the passage as I'm reading this. He transforms us through the renewing of our minds. He imputes his righteousness to us. He justifies us through faith alone. He extends us mercy for our sin, and he has compassion on us like sheep without shepherds. So in the same way that God delivered Moses from slavery, Jesus has delivered us from the bondage of sin. Because not only does he not give us what we deserve, which is mercy, he gives us an ongoing abundance of unearned and undeserved blessings and benefits. Unearned, undeserved blessings and benefits. Now, my wife loves her birthday. I mean, this is a woman right here that just... You will never meet another woman that loves her birthday. Now, back in the day, I don't know what it was. I'm still trying to find answers for this. But back in the day after we first got married, somehow her birthday lasted a month. I mean, it felt like every day somebody was giving her a gift and everybody was, you know, there was like another cake sitting on the, on the coffee table somehow when I'd get home. And I, I mean, it was so bad that my family just, just called it the national holiday, Right. Because it was ongoing. It, I mean, I don't, we're still receiving gifts on her for her 24th birthday, it feels like right now. She ain't 24. I'm just going to leave it right there at that, you know? But it was crazy. But this is what I'm saying. This is what that really horrible analogy is getting us to, is that God's love has no dimension. It's ongoing. God's love has no dimension that time and space is able to hold, right? And at the same time, at the same time, it's that big but it's also the kind of intimate love that a compassionate father has for his child. So God's grace, God's benefits, they're infinite, yet they're intimate at the same time. And what David is saying here is he's saying, don't forget God. He's saying, don't forget God. In fact, he's, he's admonishing himself in this. He's saying, don't forget God, David. Remember his benefits. They come in all of the right quantities. Do you forget? Are you like me? Do you forget? Are you forgetful like I am? Do you have selective memory when you think and you look back and maybe you only see the negative things of your life, the valleys of your life, maybe not seeing that even in those valleys, even in those down and dark times, it was God's grace that was still supplying you with these benefits? Man, sometimes we just don't see that, do we? We're not intentional in looking for that because we have selective memories. We know our kids. Our kids have wonderfully selective memories, right? 
Every time you find your kids slumped over and dragging their feet with pouty lips while wearing their free clothes, eating their free food, living in your free house, while playing with really your free toys, right? You want to say, hey, hey, forget not all your benefits, right? That's what you really want to say to them. But you know what? I mean, this is who we are. Our kids are just mimicking who we are because that is how we're born in the depths of our hearts, right? A.W. Pink, this is what he says. The gospel contemplates, the good news of Jesus, it, it contemplates every descendant of Adam, that's us, as a fallen, polluted, hell-deserving, and helpless sinner. Happy Mother's Day, right? There it is, right there. The grace, listen to what he says, the grace which the gospel publishes is his only hope. All stand before God convicted as transgressors of his holy laws, guilty and condemned criminals who are not merely awaiting sentence, but the execution of the sentence already has passed upon them. Be careful how you communicate this to a family member during Mother's Day lunch today, all right? Just go easy, right? But given what we deserve, the list of benefits that David listed there, he's saying these must be remembered. We remember God's benefits. And we remember God's benefits because, number two, God remembers us. God remembers us. Let's pick up in verse 13. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So David brings us back to the care and character of a father who has compassion on those who fear him. He says, we are dust and our days are like grass. But, this is what he says, he knows our frame. He knows our frame. Well, what does he know about our frame? Well, he knows the substance that we are made of because he made us. Genesis 2 verse 7 tells us, God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. This is one of the ways God's grace takes on a more glory-filled and gratefulness-inducing place in our life when we connect with the realization that we are dust. Now, my wife, man, I'm, Mother's Day, I should be a little kinder. Uh, obviously, I'm picking on my wife today. My wife will admit this to you, all right? I don't want to look at her right now. Nothing in our house over five feet tall has ever gotten dusted, right, since we've been married, right? And we don't care because we can't see it, and I'm not really that much taller than five feet tall. Uh, only Zach Watson has ever pointed out how dusty everything is because he's very tall and not a very nice person, actually, when he's... <laughs> over at our house. Um, my point, this is the most time and attention I've ever given, by the way, to the subject of dust in my life. And yet, this is the very substance God formed us from. This is what he formed us from. And more importantly, he graces us with blessings and benefits despite the substance that we're made of. I'm not just trying to drop the name of our church in my thing right now, right? He knows us. It says he remembers us. He knows what we're made of. He is more intimately acquainted with us than we can possibly fathom. He knows how easily our fears and our anxieties and our worries and our forgetfulness and fatigue and failures rule us and consume us. 
He is utterly familiar with our fragility. Two weeks ago in Psalm 139, we read just how intimately God knows us. Remember? It says he searches us. He knows when we sit down and when we rise up. He discerns our thoughts from afar. He is acquainted with all our ways. And the reason why God gives the kind of benefits he gives to those who fear him is because this is what is necessary. This is what is necessary to live abundantly in him. And he's the kind of father God who gives good gifts, even when they are gifts that discipline us, even when they are the gifts of adversity. Everything in the plan of God is something to draw us nearer to the happiness, hope, and glory of God. So given what God remembers about our dust-made frames, and he is still so good, and he still piles on the grace. Look what it says in verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. No beginning, no end. Everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So let's recap. We are dust. Our days are like grass. And yet God through Christ has been good enough to lavish us with an abundance of gracious and undeserved benefits that we forget, that we doubt, and we don't believe in as people who are made of the same substance that collects on top of our fridges. That should do something to us when we start to understand the depths of God's grace given who we are. So the question is then, if David is saying we need to remember God's benefits because he remembers us, how do we not forget? How do we do that? How do we not forget? How do we live in and live out the benefits that God provides to us by his grace? Number one, this is what we do, and this brings us back to the beginning of the passage. We bless God with all that is in us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Before David even remembers God's benefits and blessings, he blesses God in verse 1. Well, what, what does it mean to bless God then? Well, this is what John Piper says. John Piper says it means to speak well of his greatness and goodness and really mean it from the depths of your soul. I like that. That's simple for a simple guy like me. It means to speak well of his goodness and greatness and really mean it from the depths of your soul. Now, the promise, the problem we face when confronted with the way David remembers and receives God's grace in his soul with all that is within him is that it doesn't feel tangible to us, right? It just doesn't feel tangible. When David blesses God with all that is in him, our first thought is, Ronnie, let's define all. Let's define all. What do we mean by all? But David doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't spend any time parceling out his life like that. Because here's what we know about grace. Grace covers all of your life. It covers all of your life. There's nothing that it doesn't touch. And in fact, listen, if God's grace was selective, it would mean there would be parts of you left unredeemed and therefore unable to bless God with all that is in you. We were created to speak well of God from every fiber of our grace-redeemed beings. 
Redeemed people, they must be remembering people because our flesh pulls us toward being forgetful ones. A redeemed person praises the God who redeemed them in Christ. I mean, how many of you brag about how great your boss is? For those of you who have great bosses, why is she great? That's my question, because she lets you do the job that earns your wages? Why is she so great? How much more should we boast in the Lord who gifted you in Jesus Christ because the wages you earned by your sin were the dollar amount of death? How much more do we bless God with all that is in us? And for some of you, here today who might wonder why you feel cold and you feel indifferent or distant from God because we we talk about this and David uses this dramatic language and sometimes it's hard for us in our hearts to feel like we get close to this and you you feel like I don't know I just man I hear what you're saying and I hear sort of the you know the dramatic tone of the language but I just feel like I don't know how to connect with it well first off do you realize the fact that you even get to bless God as a believer, with all that is in you, indicates that you've been given the benefits to even bless him for? Like, when we speak well of someone, or we express thanks to someone, it means that we've received something of which we're grateful for, and has benefited us. And in fact, we only groan inside when we feel entitled or deserving. And then blessing someone just feels obligatory, right? When our hearts struggle with this, before the Lord, it, it's, it's due to unbelief. And unbelief in Christians leads to something. It leads to pride and it leads to hypocrisy. Luckily, we live in an age where you don't find a lot of hypocrites in the church these days. That was me being funny, but very dry and straight. Matthew 15 verse 8 says this. This was Jesus talking. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart, he said, is far from me. So the message there for us is very simply, don't be a hypocrite. Don't say things that aren't flowing from the depths of your soul. David was preaching this to himself in this psalm. Why? Because he needed to, because he was just a man. Because he was just as prone to falling into ungratefulness as we are. He was preaching this to himself so that this wouldn't happen. And so we need to do the same. We need to take Psalm 103. We need to adopt this into a way of living for us. We don't want to just mindlessly bless God on Sundays or before dinner or at community group or during our devotional time. We want to stir our souls by immersing it in the glory of God's grace and the beauty of his benefits, just like David is doing. You know why? Because what flows out of your mouth is what's formed in your soul. What flows out of your mouth is the very thing that is formed in your soul. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you ever want to know what God wants you to do in life, there it is. It's not that complicated. He wants you to rejoice. He wants you to pray. He wants you to cultivate a life of prayer. He wants you to give thanks in all of the deep, dark, and high and bright circumstances in your life. And in fact, the book of 1 Kings tells us that this was David's life. Even in spite of being a dude that sinned just egregiously, right? But 1 Kings tells us that David 
holy, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, followed the Lord, and that his heart was wholly true to God. Now, there's a reason we sing first thing on Sunday, right? We're not trying to just butter everybody up, you know? In fact, I mean, you would, on Sunday morning, that's probably the worst time to sing, right? I mean, we're tired, our throats are creaky, we're cranky, but there's a reason we sing first thing on Sunday. It's because we want the volume, listen to me, of God's glory to come rushing through our mouths from the fullness of our souls that God will fill, that God is good to fill. So our souls sing out in glory for the glory of Christ that we are now shareholders in because God has so greatly benefited us. And this is the guts of grace. What might change in you if you do what David did? If you regularly bless God with all that is in you from the depths of your soul because you made it a daily habit to remember his benefits? Or do we just think this is a good suggestion? Do we read this and just think, well, that's a nice thought. That's something to aim for. Not a bad idea. Or do we look at this as being the key, the very key to abundant life? So we bless God with all that is in us. Number two, we remember God's benefits because he remembers us by fearing and obeying God for all he has done for us. So again, as we bless God with all that is in us and our souls become stirred toward God by remembering the grace of his benefits, we will be compelled to fear God and obey him. Look what it says in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 13 is the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who Fear him. And then 18, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So God has an incomprehensible, uh, incomprehensible, a dimensionless love toward those who fear him. And again, not fear isn't being afraid of him, but is placing him as high king over our life, right? As honoring him above all of his creation, of being transformed fixed by the awe of his infinite power and the unsurpassing beauty and majesty of his glory. If this describes the God we need to rightly fear, I mean, we can only imagine the depths of compassion he has and the magnitude of this compassion that he has for those he's chosen to be his children, Right? Ironically, though, this fear and obedience will only happen when, like David, you know that you need to wholly need God. Tim Keller says this, never do we find God's grace unless something has shown us our weakness, insufficiency, sin, and neediness. So when we grasp, when we finally grasp our fleetingness and our fragility, we can praise God for his faithfulness and we can practice faithfulness to God. We keep the covenant he keeps with us then. We obey his commandments because they are good to us and they come to us as another opportunity to immerse ourselves in his grace. Man, I was thinking about obedience this week. It's a weird word for us. It's a word that we don't particularly like or love. But I was thinking about obedience and I tried to unpack 
whether it was true in my own life. Now, if you ask me if I have a desire to obey God, the answer is I do by God's grace. I do. But I thought about whether I actually obey God. If I really obey the voice of his word, if I really do his will, like David is calling out the angels and all of creation do here at the end of the psalm in verses 20 or 22, which says, bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So the question I ask is, am I really doing that? Because I think when we think of what it means to obey God, oftentimes our minds do this thing where we compile a list of the things we don't do or are trying not to commit, right? We would call those sins of commission. But here's my question for us as we're trying to wrestle and grapple with obedience here as a way to receive God's grace and his benefits. Is obedience supposed to be reduced to only what we don't do? Well, the answer is that it it can't be when we read Psalm 103. Because the obedience of the Christian is that they bless God with all that is in them and obey God for all he has done for them. Maybe we don't understand God's grace because we think that to obey God is a white-knuckle attempt at not doing bad things. And so the Christian life, man, it just continues to feel exhausting and unsatisfying. But grace, true grace, God's grace, the grace that starts in Genesis in the Bible and goes all the way to Revelation, true grace leads us to a radically deeper, infinitely more beautiful, increasingly more satisfying portrait of obedience. Look, grace doesn't only produce a desire and ability to turn from sin. It produces a desire and ability to turn to God with your newly reborn, white-as-snow soul. That's what grace is doing. Grace guards us from sin, but it guards us from sin so that we are free to be given over to God with all that is within us, like David is saying here. And as benefactors of God's grace, we will bless God. And we will benefit not only ourselves, but we will benefit others because that grace that is flowing in us and through us can't but come out of us to show the glory and salvation and truth and beauty that exists in Jesus Christ. Bless the Lord, O my soul, David says. Forget not his benefits. Remember his goodness. Boast In his grace, this is what God is like. And this is the good news. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift that is your grace. I pray that we would understand it. I pray that we would ask for more of it. Lord, I pray that we would remember it as the greatest benefit of our lives and that we would bless you with all that is in us. And Lord, we would learn to fear and obey you, knowing that this is the grace you've given us as the key to an abundant life, Lord, that remembers you and cherishes you and loves you and holds you higher than all other things in our life. I pray that we would do that. I pray that you would teach us 
to do that. And we thank you that because of your grace, we don't have to be in despair if this doesn't reflect our lives. Because your grace makes it so that you are drawing us closer to the reality of these truths. And that is a grace, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.